welcome to Witness the Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Patrice Dutil. In 1978, Fred Cyclone Taylor gave his last interview. Taylor was one of the first great all-star hockey players. Born in 1884 in the small village of Tara, Ontario, he learned the game while playing on the local ponds. By the time he was 16, he was known all over the province. He became a professional when he turned 22 and played the exotically named positions of cover point and rover. He played for four teams until he retired in 1922 and won the Stanley Cup twice. Hockey has always been Canada's game, he told his interviewer. We still play it better than anyone else in the world and I wish I could lace up my skates right now and get out there and keep it that way. He was 94 years old. Four years ago, the Champlain Society commissioned Andrew Holman, a professor of history at Bridgewater University in Massachusetts, to create a volume of key documents in the history of hockey. The idea was to inject something that would expand the range of our volumes. The book is now hot off the press, and it's entitled A Hotly Contested Affair, Hockey in Canada. It's a wonderful, path-breaking work, and to discuss what went into putting it together, we reached Andrew Holman at his office at Bridgewater U. Andrew, welcome to Witness to Yesterday. Thank you, Patrice. It's really great to be with you. I always uh, like to discuss hockey with anybody who will listen, and uh, I'm particularly <laughs> pleased to do that uh, with respect to a hotly contested affair. Andrew, you're the witness to yesterday for this episode. What took place on Friday, April 13th, 1951? On that date, uh, it marked um, the the travel of a youth hockey team from the Pelican Lake Residential School in Sioux Lookout, Ontario, to uh, Ottawa to come and uh, play against a local Ottawa team called the East Ottawa Browns in uh, this kind of cultural meeting that was arranged by the Federal Department of Indian Affairs. Uh, after they played uh, a couple of games in Ottawa, the uh, Sioux Lookout team then went on to to uh, uh, Toronto and played a couple of games before they went back. They were a, a very interesting collection of of kids who, um, uh, through the largesse of the Canadian government and through, of course, their own enthusiasm and love for the game, uh, became quite a good squad. Uh, above the Lakehead, they won many games from 1948 to 51, and this was kind of a reward uh, for doing so well and for adopting uh, a program that the government wanted to see them adopt. This was a team of peewees when they started out who'd never played hockey before, if I read you correctly. That's right, yes. And uh, in the book, I, I have put together a few documents that uh, trace the news coverage anyway. I wish there was uh, some more documentation that could tell us what the experience was like from the kids' perspective. But uh, at least we have that kind of trace to, to find out what the games were like and how uh, local uh, folks received them, which was very warmly. Uh, and, of course, how the media uh, interpreted this um, cultural meeting. Uh, of course, in the 1950s, it was still, uh, I suppose, politically correct might be the word to say to employ... Uh, in uh, editorials, the old Wild West uh, imagery and terminology. And so there was, in some of the reportage, it was uh, language that we wouldn't uh, use today or appreciate much. Uh, but it certainly made for, um, for a historian, from a historian's perspective anyway, it makes for a, a great text to unpack. 
it just goes to show how widely you skated. I'm going to use that expression. On the ice, when we asked for a, a book on hockey, uh, it wasn't just about the NHL. No, no. And I think that that's so critical. I mean, uh, so many of us are fans of hockey and love the National Hockey League and uh, look at it as being the kind of pinnacle of elite hockey and professional hockey, but it really is the tip of the pyramid as far as hockey and hockey culture in Canada is concerned. And so uh, I think folks who have a look at this book will see that most of it really uh, has little or nothing to do with the NHL, uh, except to the effect that, uh, to the extent rather that the NHL uh, colors and and shapes and influences how minor hockey is played and always has been played in Canada. Well, like like old Cyclone Taylor said, and I cited him uh, at the outset because he personally witnessed hockey's evolution for most of its history. Hockey is is a widely accepted part of the Canadian identity. Why do you think this is so? It's a great question, and uh, there there are a couple of simple answers, and maybe some that are more complex that historians of the country will uh, understand better. Uh, the first reason I would say is that, you know, hockey is Canada's game because Canadians invented it, or at least they claim to invent it, and others outside of the country believe them, even though there was a variety of ball and stick games played on the ice in various parts of the world uh, in the uh, 17th, 18th, 19th centuries, and well back beyond that, if we think about First Nations uh, versions of the game, uh, in 1875 in Montreal is uh, when we trace back the roots of the current form of the modern game and its entrenchment with rules, uh, with uh, 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 scheduled games, with uniforms, with teams, all of the trappings that we have of the modern game. So the reason number one would be that Canadians can claim to have invented it and the, sold it to the rest of the world. But, you know, there's more than that, too, that... Uh, hockey's Canada's game because it seems uh, that we've equated it, we've made it into a metaphor for Canadian life, that uh, hockey isn't American baseball and it isn't uh, British rugby or, or soccer or cricket. Uh, it has a kind of ruggedness to it. It has been played outdoors, although it's played outdoors much less so than ever before. And so it represents to some then a kind of conquest of winter that Canadians in their Nordicity have embraced the winter months and made it into uh, something that's enjoyable. It's a game that's that's cold and fast and a bit violent sometimes. That's right. Cold <laughs> Is that what makes it Canadian? <laughs> I think so. I think so. Absolutely. Now, you know, I would say also, Patrice, and I think this is important, that that hockey is a kind of a text, too, that, that carries with it and bears with it the kinds of... Um, quintessentially Canadian problems as well. We can see that the th you know it, it unites us in these kind of 60-minute moments of national unity, whether that's in 1972 during the Summit Series or whether it's you know following Sidney Crosby's golden goal in 2010. Uh, but at the same time, hockey's history uh, opens us up to the kind of problems that Canadians have suffered and endured for the longest time, divisions between men and women, divisions between white settler cultures and uh, indigenous cultures, uh, divisions between whites and African Canadians, Asian Canadians, etc. And of course, 
language divisions as well, where uh, hockey means, uh, we think, uh, some things to English Canadians, but in the province of Quebec, uh, hockey has a rarefied different meaning for uh, French Canadians as well and has done for a long time. And yet everybody buys into the game. Everybody buys into the rules and as they evolve and the game's legitimacy is never placed in doubt. That's exactly right. I think people uh, look upon it then as a place where where the Canadian story gets played out uh, in all of its uh, uh, triumphant sense, but also in its problematic sense as well. It's a unique bridge when there aren't that many bridges, bridges that can uh, link one region to another, one culture to another, one language to another, one religion to another. Absolutely true. Yeah, I think in all of those respects, that's that's true. It does have that potential that so many other uh, cultural activities don't have the capacity to do, or at least not in the same kind of breadth or power. Andrew, how would you describe the state of writing on hockey today? And I'm talking, I mean, as a scholar, as as a consumer of hockey, how do you rate the state of writing? And, you know, I'm talking about scholarship. I'm talking about the many, many, many books of pop history. I'm even talking about journalism. I mean, do you, are you satisfied with the state of writing? Is, is it going in the right direction? Absolutely, yes. Uh, I think hockey writing is more vibrant than it's ever been, and it's been vibrant for quite some time. Uh, it's complex. There's There are very different sorts of neighborhoods or pods of writing within the field of hockey. We've got the kind of uh, uh, popular journalism that's done. We have uh, uh, popular biographies that are done just as popular today as they were in, say, the 1950s when the first big-time stars of uh, modern hockey were coming to the fore. Uh, and I think what's most important is that in the past 25 years or so, uh, scholars have begun to turn their attention towards hockey as well. Before then, it was considered by many to be kind of lightweight, uh, maybe even to a scholarly mind, a kind of embarrassment, this kind of uh, plebeian oh, um, attachment that Canadians, a good many Canadians had, but but that some scholars would prefer not to recognize. So if you looked at history textbooks from the 70s and 80s, for example, you'd find scant mention of hockey. I think that's changing now, in part because there's a vibrant group of, of scholars from a variety of different disciplines, including history, sociology, political science, management, economics, Canadian studies, literature especially, who are taking the game seriously, are taking the cue from uh, scholars like Richard Gruno and David Whitson, who wrote Hockey Night in Canada in 1993, and really opened up uh, the field for a scholarly study. And so uh, I, I, I'm really uh, uh, pleased to consider myself a part of that new movement. Well, and uh, if, if the listeners don't know, you are among the leading scholars on hockey with a whole series of wonderful, wonderful, instructive and, and thoughtful books. Um, we gave you a wide, a wide canvas uh, for this book. How, how did you go, if I can use that expression, how did you go about coloring it so well? Well, that's a loaded question, loaded in my favor. <laughs> I, I sort of feel like the government minister who's asked a question from his same party backbencher. <laughs> Why is your policy so good? <laughs> uh, but thank you. Um, I I, um, I think I was naive in the when I started this out that uh, that this was a kind of an organic project. That once I j I just had to visit uh, archives. I just had to spend lots of time on the computer visiting. Uh, uh, virtual archives, 
and collect as many documents as I thought were significant. And then the themes would kind of boil to the surface. And uh, I, so I originally didn't impose any kind of order, thematic order, uh, chronological order, anything on my research. And, and what I found was that about two years into the project, I ended up with a heap of stuff and uh, a time when I said, okay, it's time to find some direction here. How are you going to make sense of this pile of documents that are so interesting? And um, in some measure, they did suggest themselves. Uh, so I ended up uh, boiling things down to 10 main themes, which seems like a lot, uh, but 10 main themes. And of course, they're overlapping. So some of the documents that I have slotted into one theme or the other uh, could fit equally well into a second uh, theme. But they boiled down essentially to this. I wanted to talk, number one, about hockey as being an evolutionary game, a game of increments that developed uh, over time into its modern form. I wanted to talk, number two, about hockey as a vehicle for national identity and, and national debate, really, and negotiation. Number three, I wanted to talk about hockey as an arena for commerce, and really, if we look back to hockey's, even hockey's earliest days, money was always involved in hockey. Money was always a factor. It had to be when uh, the expense of playing is so high and when the cost of, uh, you know, getting your hands on, on ice regularly is so high. Hockey is a cultural problem is theme number four. Hockey number five is about hockey's, hockey's essential violence. Uh, theme number six was about the more perhaps uh, ephemeral uh, aspects of the, the culture of hockey. Hockey is a place where players could build character. Uh, and hockey is a, a place where a sense of order was imposed, just as in much of the rest of the country. Number seven is about hockey talk, how uh, the game was communicated and explained over the course of time and how technology changed that. Uh, theme number eight was about race and social order and, and hockey's essential whiteness uh, and how that came to play. And still, as we know uh, from the Black Lives Matter movement and its resonance with the playoffs in the NHL this summer, how it still is very much a factor in determining hockey's identity. And then the final two themes are about gender, about women's and girls' hockey and the kind of challenges that, that women and girls faced over the past century and a bit. Uh, to find their own ice and to claim the game for themselves. The final one being, of course, uh, hockey as an international calling card for Canadians. And so it's a bit of a, a grocery list here, but these were the things that kind of boiled to the surface for me over time. I remember having a moment sitting in uh, the special collections department in Brock University in my hometown of St. Catharines, Ontario, <laughs> and having one of those uh, seldom had eureka moments when it seemed to make sense to me. Well, let's unpack some of those. You got a, you got a really great chapter on race and social order. How did you pick your documents for that section? The documents for that section uh, came about uh, as uh, you, you start with what you know. And so I'd written a piece a few years ago about a um, indigenous hockey team's barnstorming tour in the late 1920s, starting in northeastern Ontario, traveling southward through southwestern Ontario, and uh, and into uh, uh, Michigan and Ohio and Pennsylvania, Rhode Island, Connecticut, Massachusetts, 
playing 16 games and all, sometimes against one another. The Cree and Ojibwe Indian Hockey Tour is what it was called. And sometimes against local teams. And so I thought this is an important uh, uh, foothold, but there's got to be so much more. Uh, and so I looked in the archives and I leaned on work that other scholars had done, works, work like Janice Forsyth, who has written some brilliant pieces on... Uh, on First Nations hockey. And in fact, it was through her work that I came across the piece about the Pelican Lake uh, Indian Residential School that you opened the segment with. Uh, and about uh, the um, Colored Hockey League of the Maritimes through the work of people like uh, Daryl Fosty. So uh, building upon what other scholars have done and reading their footnotes, I teach my students this always. <laughs> Uh, yes. <laughs> and then and then pushing that a little bit further uh, with my own archival work, I, I managed to to come up with um, what I won't I won't say is the you know the ultimate collection of documents on race and sport, but uh, it's certainly I think for those folks those among us who who understand or read a little bit about the problem of racism and race in hockey today, I will have a chance to look back and to see what some of the roots of this problem are. You did something similar with, with women's and girls hockey, which really impressed me. How did, how, did, how did women's hockey evolve differently? Women's hockey evolved differently in a couple of ways. It had a little bit of a later start. It's not until the 1890s that we begin to see fully equipped, uh, uniformed women's teams playing against one another. Did you say 1890s? The 1890s, yes. <laughs> but, you know, these games are played in dribs and drabs, and when you read about them in the press, they're treated by male sports writers more as novelty than they are serious mm -hmm. athletic contests. It's not really till the 19-teens and 20s that we begin to see uh, the kind of coverage um, happen that, that is deserved by these teams. And, of course, in the 1920s, we see the development of excellent, uh, uh, skilled women's hockey teams in a competitive leagues like the Ladies Ontario Hockey Association, the Preston Rivulets, for example, who win Dominion championships and bring great uh, accolades to their hometown. Uh, so we see, uh, to answer your question, there's this kind of initial burst in the 19-teens, 20s, and 30s. Uh, then it, the, the sport dies a little, not dies, but perhaps is suppressed a little bit by the Second World War and into the early 1950s. It's not dead, but it takes until the 60s and 70s before uh, much in the way of new life is breathed into it. And that's when we see club teams and school teams for women and girls begin to take shape and uh, the development of uh, really talented, skilled women's hockey players who play on provincial and ultimately national stages, right? It's 19, brilliantly. 1987 is when the first uh, world tournament is held and, and the Canadians and, and, and share their kind of infectious love for the game with women in other countries. So much so that by 1998, we have the Olympics and uh, the first uh, female teams playing in it. And now it's become a, a global sport that, uh, people of all genders watch and it's competitive it's it's fun to watch it's absolutely competitive yeah but you know women's hockey is interesting for me in a, in another sense i come back to a point i made before and that uh, hockey uh, is is a mirror of the kind of debates and struggles that we have about about gender and about other things 
So if you if you follow the women's game, you'll know that uh, there are big, big questions that that abound. You know, there's this eternal struggle for women and girls to get the kind of funding and recognition and ice time for their sport that uh, boys and men have always claimed to be theirs. Uh, that was the same in the 1960s as it is in the 1920s as it is in the present day. There's also the question about integrated sport, which I talk about in my chapter a little bit. Uh, and uh, under what conditions should girls be allowed to play on boys' teams? It was a, um, a very pointed issue that uh, came up in the 1950s with Abby Hoffman, and it came up again in the 1980s with Justine Blaney in Metro Toronto in her struggles to try to uh, just play the version of the game that she wanted to play rather than be slotted into a game uh, that was held out as the women's game. And so um, these questions are hardly resolved by now, but hopefully that chapter helps trace uh, some of that past. Again, it traces the evolution of the game from something that's forcibly very amateurish, um, occasional, to something today which is a part of the lives of so many young ladies and so many girls and women, and they, they play hockey as a as a hobby, as a sport. Uh, for many women, it's the equivalent of uh, a passion for hockey is equivalent to that of, of a man. I mean, it's 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 it has evolved dramatically. We can't avoid having. A discussion about violence and I was really impressed by your your selection of documents on that section what did your archival research tell you about how we have interpreted and how we have lived the, the violence of, of Canadian hockey this was one of the chapters that I had a kind of an embarrassment of riches for <laughs> uh, because it, it gets so much cover and the coverage and there was so much thought that people have about it. It is unique, Andrew. I mean, there is no sport where this kind of violence has been accepted, much less today, of course, but it is unique in the world. That's right. And uh, if you look back at some of the earliest editorials that, that you know, uh, newspaper writers wrote in the early 1900s, they'd all say things like, well, you know, a little bit of contact, contact physicality is part of the game. We know that but not too much. <laughs> so the, yes. the question of, of what constitutes not too much has been hockey's puzzle ever since. And the game was violent in those days. It absolutely was. Yeah, in the 19-teens, for example, there were several stick-swinging incidents that uh, led up to court cases and two prominent deaths that were results of stick-swinging incidents. Uh, yes, are they... Um, exceptional to be sure, but there are also exceptions that shed light on the kind of culture of the game. And so I include some segments on those. I'd say that, uh, that there are two big waves of uh, excessive violence or hyper-violence that happen in the history of hockey. The first one is in that you know, window of the first 20 years of the 20th century. And the second one is in the 1970s and the early 1980s, the days of the Broad Street bullies, the Philadelphia Flyers, who through intimidation won a couple of Stanley Cups. And so uh, thereby in doing so uh, created a kind of model for success uh, for others to emulate. And uh, the results uh, were not good, not at the, the professional level and not at the amateur level, youth level as well. I liked your chapter on communicating the game. I thought that was very original. What was your intention there? Well, you know, my intention was uh, to start with a premise that 
hockey's too fast to really uh, communicate effectively. And think about it, it's true, right? I mean, the, the, we've come accustomed to, become accustomed to listening to or watching, particularly watching hockey games and hearing announcers kind of struggle to keep, keep up with the play or to describe something that your own eyes tell you didn't really happen or didn't happen in the way that they said it did. And so I thought, this has probably been a perennial problem with uh, communicating the game. And so I wanted to trace that right back from newspaper reportage and the ways in which writers tried to capture the game and the printed word, and then through the use of telegraphic reports and how a kind of makeshift play-by-play -play, uh, came about because of telegraph reports being so perfunctory. Uh, that people had to interpret them, right? I was impressed by your inclusion, um, and I, I was simply not aware uh, of the concerns in Quebec about the use of the French language by René Le Cavalier. René Le Cavalier, whom I knew much later uh, as an absolutely outstanding master of the French language, creating a whole imagery of hockey en français, which was magical. And yet, in the early 1960s, He's harshly criticized. He is, yes, and it's part of a <laughs> of a kind of a, a French-speaking uh, middle class in the 1950s and 60s, at the time just before and just the early stages of the Quiet Revolution, when a new sense of identity is being put forward, a new kind of um, oh prospect for what the Quebec nation could become, and uh, and here uh, many people despaired of the kind of uh, provincialism that existed in the countryside, but also worried just as much about how being surrounded by a sea of English speakers might pollute the language, might um, begin in kind of insidious ways and maybe undetectable ways, at least at first, of capturing uh, the French language. He was the play-by-play -play announcer and was absolutely magical in his imagery. And his his diction, his vocabulary was incessantly imaginary. It was it was creative. It was a delight, and I have to say, many many years after his departure, I miss him. <laughs> yes. Well, I don't think you're alone there, and, and certainly he was celebrated in the years in the decade or so just before his death. But Very he, um, I, I'm not, I don't think it was Le Cavalier necessarily who was the. It was the target. He was just the kind of implement. It was soirée de hockey on Saturday night becomes this kind of vehicle that that French uh, Canadian nationalists worry about slipping in anglicisms yes. uh, in the term in the language of hockey, right? So the insistence on using rondelle instead of puck, uh, and the list goes on. And even even today, if you look at the Quebec government website, you'll find that there is a web page devoted to. French uh, words for hockey terms uh, and an encouragement that they be employed rather than uh, the, uh, the the English slang. I mean, do you get the impression that hockey is life and everything else is just details? <laughs> <laughs> I'd say hockey, hockey reflects life. Hockey reflects life. <laughs> That's right. um, you see hockey as a tool to shape Canadian minds and character. H how do you capture that? Yeah, I... Um... I'm not sure I do actually. Okay. I, I, what I do is to, to put together some documents that show that Canadians in the 20th century believed that that was true. Okay, fair enough, yes. All you need to do is to look at the rhetoric around the establishment of uh, Canadian Hockey Week, 
which uh, was started in the 1950s by the Canadian Amateur Hockey Association and has been in place ever since. It's a celebration of hockey. It happens in tiny towns in northern British Columbia and in Newfoundland, and it happens in big cities in Canada as well. And so there's this this notion that somehow by introducing kids into the game, you're going to teach them sportsmanship, you're going to teach them uh, uh, leadership skills, you're going to teach them all the things they need to know to become good Canadian citizens as they rise to the uh, moment. How to use your elbows. Yeah, that's right. But <laughs> maybe. But uh, to be honest, uh, as as somebody who's played a lot of hockey and uh, and coached hockey, um, I think hockey could be, in some circumstances, a vehicle for that. I don't think it necessarily does that. There's nothing intrinsically about the game that's going to churn somebody out at the end of the meat grinder a better person than they were when they first strapped on the skates. Mm. But, but you're leading me to another question. Um, do you think we do enough for hockey in, in Canada, in this country? Yes, I do. And and, Canada, and the government of Canada and Hockey Canada does a superb job of uh, promoting the game, of promoting its great values. Uh, in recent years, I think hockey authorities like those have uh, realized that the game needs to change uh, and that uh, in order to maintain, uh, you know, Canadians' love for the game, we need to do more. We need to uh, make the game accessible to uh, people from diverse backgrounds. Uh, it's good to see that's taking place. There's a piece in the Christian Science Monitor uh, a couple of months ago where they sent a reporter up from Boston to go and and find out about this. Is hockey just as, as white as people complain and, and, and say about it? And she went to a couple of rinks in Mississauga and told me that uh, she was flabbergasted by the diversity that exists in the game. Now, I know that's not true everywhere, and I know that there are uh, problems about uh, about racism that exist all through the country, but uh, but on that front, I think it's absolutely true. The, the other thing I would say, uh, Patrice, and this is important, is that uh, a th hockey governing bodies like the Metro Toronto Hockey League and other, uh, I'm told this is true in Vancouver as well, uh, where they have lots of kids who are playing the game in the boys' sport, uh, they have levels of hockey now, house league hockey, where there will be no contact at all. And and I think that that's wonderful, that what you're doing is guaranteeing that there's going to be a cohort of kids who maybe aren't the very best players or the most competitive, but they're going to continue to love the game of hockey and they'll play it into their adulthood. And uh, that wasn't the way when I was growing up. You don't think it takes away from the game? Well, I think the game is, uh, and that's the problem, right? That we call it the game, but there are many games of hockey. Uh, and yes. so a version yes. of the game, a very viable and enjoyable one, can be one that doesn't have uh, body contact in it. I think that's perfectly fine. One that emphasizes skating and speed and passing. Exactly right. Yeah, yeah, I think that that's true. And, and of course, the dynamic changes a little bit. Sure. As a defender, <laughs> you, you have uh, <laughs> one less uh, tool in the toolbox, but, but, but so be it. You know, I think that's wonderful. How do you think your book, now that it's come out, uh, will help people think about hockey, Andrew? Is there, is there a message here for, for teachers and for scholars or or for the reader? Yeah, I think the, the, there's a couple of messages. Uh, number one is as much as we think we've inherited uh, a simple game with a simple history, what this collection of documents will show us is that it's a much more 
complex history. The hockey that we started with 120 years ago or more uh, is very different from the kind of hockey we play today. Uh, it's the hockey we play today is much more inclusive, much more reflective of, uh, of a Canada that's diverse in, in many ways. And that the game has grown with the country. It's really a, a good example of what uh, people who live outside of the country of Canada admire about Canada is its flexibility, its openness, its willingness to listen and adapt and adjust and not be uh, just entrenched in traditional old ways. And so that is, I think, above all, the most important lesson that can be drawn from this book. I think the game, the game is played today better than at any time in its history. Would you, would you agree with that? Yeah, it absolutely is. The athletes are better. The equipment's better. The technology's better. Uh, the quality of ice. Isn't the net too small? <laughs> I guess think that depends on who you're asking. It's not too small for Connor McDavid or Leon Dreisaitl. <laughs> Let's talk about you, Andrew. Um, you've been teaching uh, at Bridgewater just south of Boston for, for how many years now? Twenty... Four years it has been now, yeah. You're, you're a Canadian. You studied, you finished your PhD at York University. That's right. Born and raised in St. Catharines, Ontario. My family's still there. Uh, and I, I did my undergraduate degree at McGill and then uh, my master's degree at McMaster and then PhD, as you say, at York. And you said you, you, you've played hockey all your life, or you're still playing it today? I do, yeah. It's, uh, I've got, I grew up with, in a family with three brothers and a, and a dad who loved hockey. And my mom had to, whether she went well, that's to... That's a whole team. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so it was in the... It, it, it didn't seem like much of a choice. It seemed like more of an inheritance. And uh, it's one of the things I'm most grateful for. And it's a thing that still, even though I have a brother who lives in Vancouver, another in Toronto, another in St. Catharines, uh, we get together um, once or twice a year to play in a tournament together or play in a couple of games together on a old-timers uh, pickup team. And uh, what a great way to stay in touch. Is that, what, is that why you decided to take your scholarly career in the direction of hockey? What, what prompted that as opposed to doing social history or military history or or, or political history, or, or do you see all those things wrapped into hockey? It all has to, well, I think, I think there is a connection, and I've only just recently started to think about this, but um, part of the reason was uh, I wrote a very dull PhD thesis that was made into an even duller uh, uh, monograph. I shouldn't say that, That'll, <laughs> but it has what I call the, the page 11 rule. All of my family members have a copy of my first book with a bookmark in page 11. <laughs> Uh, and I think we know why, right? They did their due diligence. And, then, <laughs> and they gave but, up. <laughs> uh, the, the point I'm trying to make is that when I came to the United States, um, some of the, the topics that we study and that seem to be vibrant and worthwhile topics for discussing among Canadians don't really appeal to Americans. And so in order to sell Canada to Americans, I had to think about the sorts of topics that I wanted to use as modes of entry or as beachheads to... Um, to you know, be able to to invite them to study more about Canada, and there were two things that I began to write about that I I think now subconsciously I did so because they they would appeal to students and Americans generally. One was about the border and borderlands and border culture. Having been uh, born and raised in St. Catharines, that appealed to me, and the other one was about hockey because it's one of the things that Americans know about 
Canada and Canadians. And um, if you can start with a stereotype and then draw them in, <laughs> so to speak, then you can begin, uh, once you have them in, you can begin to explain uh, uh, a lot more uh, about how Canada isn't this uh, cold uh, cardboard cutout, but it's actually a real place with vibrant people and real problems. What position do you play, Andrew? Anything but goalie. Okay. <laughs> well, in that case, I'll, I'll simply end it by saying that I hope that your your offense is sharp and that your skates are also sharp when you're skating backwards in defense. <laughs> Thank you very much. It's been my pleasure. That was Andrew Holman, the editor of the 2020 volume of the Champlain Society, a hotly contested affair, Hockey in Canada. You've been listening to Witness to Yesterday, the Champlain Society podcast on Canadian history. Please visit our website at www.champlainsociety.ca where you'll find more about the, what the Society does. There's even a place to become a member and a sustainer of the Society if you like these conversations with historians about Canada's past. Please let people know how much you like these dialogues by using whatever social media you use. We'd be really proud of your support. This podcast is made possible by the members of the Champlain Society who are making an investment in the hard work of bringing to life original documents in Canadian history. Thank you. Thanks also to the Hudson's Bay Company Foundation, the L.R. Wilson Institute of History at McMaster University, and a consortium of Canadian scholarly book publishers that includes the University of Toronto Press, the University of British Columbia Press, and the University of Ottawa Press. My name is Patrice Dutil. This interview was recorded in the middle of a pandemic on October 30th, 2020 by Jessica Schmidt. Thank you, everybody. We'll see you next time.